So we are in Matthew 22, and we are dealing with an unusual wedding celebration. This passage introduces us to a celebration that a king creates for his son. What's unusual is that the invited guests don't show up. And so the king invites riffraff from off the street. Another unusual thing is that a guy shows up and is actually at the celebration and doesn't have the proper outfit on and is ejected. So why did that happen? And the parable concludes with this principle that says, many are called, but few chosen. There's a contrast between called and chosen. What makes the difference? All of this came probably on Tuesday of the last week before Christ's crucifixion. In fact, chapter 21, down through the beginning of chapter 24, probably all occurred this same day. It was a long day in the temple. And the leadership did not like what Jesus was doing. This is the high point of their reaction to him. They didn't like They didn't like the triumphal entry. They didn't like what the kids were saying in the temple when he came in, Hosanna to the son of David. They didn't like the way he took over the temple and ruined their commercial enterprise and turned it into a house of prayer. So they come to him with this question, who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus is answering that question. And he starts off by asking them the question, well, John the Baptist, was his authority from heaven or was his authority from men? They said, well, we can't really answer that. And he gave them in response to that three parables. Parable number one, we we talked about two weeks ago, the parable of two sons, both disobedient, the good one and the bad one. Parable number two last week was the parable of the vineyard. Pharisees were responsible as tenants over the vineyard. They saw the owner's son come and say, this is the heir, let's kill him and take over this whole enterprise. So now today we have the third parable addressed to the same people. You'll notice in 20, chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus has just identified to the Pharisees what they're going to do. They're going to kill him. And he's just told them that he knows what they know, what they're going to do. So they know the heir knows they're going to kill him. Jesus has also just gotten them to admit publicly what their condemnation is. And they say in answer to his questions, the landowner will kill those miserable wretches and will give the vineyard to somebody else bearing the fruit. So in light of that, he talks about this unusual parable. What the parable is doing is it's showing the deadly effects of the ministry of these guys. 
Let me make five statements, five statements to talk about this unusual wedding. Number one, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding celebration. I'm in verses one and two. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Notice, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Have you ever thought in terms of your future as a wedding? What Jesus is saying here is that the universe is heading for a wedding. Do you normally connect the kingdom of God with a wedding? Have you ever connected future events when God takes over, when God rules the world? Have you ever connected those with romance? Have you ever thought about the fact that the underlying feature in the world's operation is love? Here Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven and a wedding celebration. A king's prepared a wedding feast for his son. The son is the heir of the kingdom. This is the same heir we saw in the last parable who the landowners intended to kill. And they actually kill him. Here he is getting ready to be married. So eight times you see the word wedding in this parable. It introduces the fact that the father for years has been preparing a bride for his son. One day soon, there's going to be an enormous celebration called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. There's somebody that wants to be at the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's the way we all ought to be with that desire. But we'll be able to walk down the tables and greet Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. You remember Matthew chapter 8, verse 11? Matthew 8, 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's a picture of life in the future. Sitting down at a table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It will be a time when we have the opportunity to hang out with big names in the Bible, as well as others. That's an event you do not want to miss. The point of the parable is that the kingdom of God is like receiving an invitation to a royal wedding. Now, there are other places in the Bible that also mention the fact that there's going to be a wedding in the future. In fact, John the Baptist came and mentioned this, that there's a bridegroom. John the Baptist says this, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, I'm not Messiah, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
So John the Baptist identifies himself as friend of the bridegroom. He says it gave him goosebumps to hear the bridegroom's voice. And because he heard the voice of the bridegroom, he declares at the end of verse 29 that he is a happy man. The bridegroom has arrived. Think about that. John the Baptist was waiting to meet the bridegroom. His ministry was to introduce and identify him. And he was delighted when that happened. The person he pointed to as the bridegroom was none other than Jesus Christ himself. John was the forerunner. He simply introduced Jesus. Once the bridegroom was on the scene, John's job was over. Jesus also identifies himself as the bridegroom in several places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, to be a bridegroom, you've got to have a bride. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that believers in Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, is the bride of Christ. So we are the ones who are privileged to be connected with the coming bridegroom. What is that wedding going to be like? Here's Revelation 19. Revelation 19 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, waters like the sound of, a mighty, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's something you don't want to miss. Christ's wedding is going to be spectacular. According to the knot, everybody familiar with the knot? K-N-O-T, website where you go if you're going to get married? According to the knot, the average wedding today costs $32,000. You fathers, get ready. I'm grateful that we had four daughters and none of them had a wedding that cost $32,000. 31.9, yes, but not 32,000. <laughs> and the average wedding dress today is $1,281. $1,281. Weddings tend to be as glorious as the pockets of those who put them on. Do you remember Jackie Kennedy, Aristotle Onassis, 1968? The report is that that wedding at that time cost Aristotle. $20 million. $20 million. How much did this one cost? William and Kate. The report is $34 million. Charles and Diana, $50 million. $50 million. 
Do you know this couple? This is uh, Venetia Mittal and Amit Bhattaya. They flew a, a thousand guests in from all over the world by private jet to France. The invitations were mailed in silver boxes, included plane tickets and rooms at a five-star hotel in Paris. The gifts received gift bags filled with jewels. Cost? A measly $60 million. But, according to the richest.com website, these are the big spenders. This is Sheikh Mohammed and Princess Salama who were married back in 1981 and who built a stadium that seated 20,000 people just for the wedding. (laughs) The groom bought 20 camels decorated with luxurious jewels for the wedding and for his bride, and the calculated cost of that wedding in today's money, 100 million bucks. But when you talk about the wedding of Jesus Christ and his bride, it will be over the top. It will make these weddings look like cardboard and tinsel. It is a splendor beyond our imagination. Try to think of what the food will be like. Try to think of what the music will be like with angelic choirs that have been preparing for ages. It's impossible to conceive of the glory of that day. That's why verse 9 of Revelation chapter 19 says, Blessed are those who are invited to this celebration. How blessed they are. This is one wedding you don't want to miss. Well, who would miss it, you ask? Well, strangely, those who were invited... Those who were invited did not come. I'm reading verse 3, verses 3 through 8. And the king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited are not worthy. So the first invitation was turned down. Verse 3 says, a group of people had been invited. They had received a save-the-date card, postcard. Actually, it probably was not a save-the-date, because back then in Jewish weddings, they did not know the date. The bride did not know the date of the wedding. She was waiting for the bridegroom to come. The bridegroom did not know the date of the wedding. He was preparing a home for her. He was waiting for the Father to say, it's time. This is why Jesus could say, no man knows the date of my return, only my Father. He's coming back for his bride, but he does not know the date. So they probably received a postcard that said, wedding coming soon. 
And then on the date of the wedding, or maybe perhaps the day before, servants come and say, it's time. Come. But the response was surprising. Would not come. No explanation. No excuse. Would not come. Really, an amazing response in light of the fact that this is the king. This is the crown prince. This is perhaps the greatest occasion they're ever going to know in that kingdom. Would not come. Second invitation. Verses 4 to 6. He graciously ignores the first no. And sends his servants to announce everything is ready. We're waiting to begin a round of feasting and celebration. Oxen, fat calves have been slaughtered, meaning we're going to have to eat them pretty quickly. The wedding is on. Everything's ready. They weren't waiting for anybody to show up. The bride was ready. The food was ready. Come. Jewish weddings were normally celebrated for seven days. But this one was more spectacular. And the magnitude is shown by the quantity. Oxen, plural. Calves, plural. Meaning there's going to be a lot of meat for this wedding. Meaning there's going to be a lot of people. Come. Two responses to the second invitation. Response number one, verse five. There was a group that paid no attention to the message and turned away. One went to his farm, another went to his business. Ignored the message. Treated the message as if it was trash. Verse six gives us the second group. The second group is far more antagonistic. The second group took the king's persistent invitation as an insult and mistreated the servants and even killed the servants. How in the world is that possible? Why in the world would they do that? For inviting them to perhaps the greatest event they would be ever get an invitation to? The fact that they were invited shows the attitude of the king. The king thinks they are important and wants them to be in the celebration. Their response shows their attitude toward the king. So what we have here is the presence of two wills. The will of the king, I want you at my celebration. You're an important part. The will of the subjects of the king, we couldn't care less about your stupid celebration. You find that in life, don't you? There's God's will, and then there's your will. And the scary part is your will. We think this is the scary part, but the scary part is your will, which can say to God, I don't care about what you're doing. I don't care about your plans for the future. So the king says that those who were invited, those who were called, were not worthy. Verse 8 gives us the conclusion. 
The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not ready. I just find it almost impossible to believe that an entire group of people could be in the category of no. You know, usually when you invite a group of people, you get a 50-50 response, maybe, or a 70-40 or 30 response or some other kind of thing. How come you've got the entire group saying, yeah. I think one of the clues is the fact that this parable is addressed to Pharisees. It's addressed to Pharisees. He's talking to Pharisees. Do you see a Pharisee in this, par- in this parable? There aren't any Pharisees here. And yet the more you think about it, you see Pharisees everywhere. This parable's full of Pharisees. You know why? The Pharisees were the guys who in the previous parable mistreated the servants, mistreated the prophets, even killed them. Got the same attitude here. Where did the attitude come from? The attitude came from the Pharisees. These are the guys who are hypocrites. These are the guys who pose as if they really love God and they couldn't care less. These are the guys hiding behind the mask. Jesus said, In Luke chapter 12, to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What is leaven? Leaven is yeast, and one of the the striking abilities of yeast is to infiltrate everything. The entire loaf, every part. And what Jesus is saying is that this Hypocrisy of the Pharisees goes everywhere. Everywhere. It's like catching the Spanish flu. If any of you can remember back in 1918. When the Spanish flu killed 10 or more, 10 million or more people around the world. You know, you get near somebody who's got the Spanish flu and the chances are you're going to get it. And if you get it, chances are you're going to get killed. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is that way. You get near a hypocrite and the chances are you get a dose of hypocrisy. And it affects you. It changes you. Your attitude changes. Because they talk about something nicely. But that's not who they are. So that's why the Pharisees could preach righteousness and raise up a generation of people who hated righteousness. That's why they could preach love for God and raise a generation of people who hated God. In the next chapter, chapter 23, Jesus talks about these Pharisees and in he pronounces seven woes against them. Seven woes against them, and in six of those woes, he announces they're hypocrites. Here's verse 13, Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you shut the kingdom of God to people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What were they doing? They were slamming the kingdom of God in people's faces. They were preaching the kingdom of God. These were the pastors. These were the guys who were interested in the kingdom of God. And what they were doing was making sure nobody ever enters because of their hypocrisy. Here's verse 17. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Can you imagine that statement? These were the spiritual leaders of this country. They acted like missionaries. They traveled to announce the good news. And somebody over there in distant lands would get saved. And when they got saved, they would inoculate them with this poison that made sure they never went to heaven. They would always go to hell. That's the danger of hypocrisy. What they were doing was the opposite of what they were preaching. They posed as one person when they were really another. A hypocrite is an actor or an actress who acts differently than he really is in order to get some kind of advantage from people not knowing who he really is. They're frauds, they're phonies, they're deceivers. They put on a face to mislead. Jesus said in Matthew 6, you guys roll out the carpet and you get down on your face and you pray in public when everybody can see you. Why? Because you're interested in prayer? They're only interested in people being impressed. They give money. Before they give money, they sound the trumpet. Plink. Why do they give money? So people would see them. They have no interest in giving money. They have no interest in praying. Hypocrites. Have you ever had hypocritical tendencies? Are you a hypocrite? Do you pose as interested and you're really not interested? You know, you come to church. Why do you come to church? Do you come to church to meet God? Do you come to church because of honest love for his word? Or do you come to church because you have to? Because you've done it for 20 years. You know? Hypocrisy is this thing that's like leaven. It goes everywhere. It gets in everything. It affects everybody. You practice hypocrisy and your kids get it. What happens is that they react and hate your hypocritical nature. And then they become like it. Hypocrisy. So what we have is we have a nation of people. We have an entire vineyard. The picture of the previous parable. An entire vineyard of people 
These Pharisees have been leading them. And what have they made out of the vineyard? They have made a generation of people born and raised in the womb of hypocrisy that hate it all. God's going to have a wonderful wedding reception for his son. Who cares? I got a farm. I got a business. Can you imagine that? So what Jesus is doing is he's helping these Pharisees understand what their lives are doing. What they're accomplishing. They're turning off a whole generation of people to the hope of salvation. So as a result of that, as a result of that rejection, the invitation goes out to everyone. You see the king saying to his servants in verses 9 and 10, Go therefore to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the servants went out to the main roads. These were the intersections. These were, these were the places where people gathered, where they were entering into the cities, where the flea markets were all held. You go out there to the main roads and call as many as you can. He actually is commanding them to keep going out. You keep going out and you keep inviting people until my wedding hall is filled. Anybody. Everybody. The invitation is universal. So good and bad were welcomed. The hall was filled with good and bad. In other words, you didn't, you didn't get in because you were good enough. The king didn't weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds. You got in because you listened to a street preacher and responded to the good news. Think of the testimony of these people as they entered this spectacular wedding setup. How'd you get into this awesome wedding feast? Well, I was coming out of West Virginia. I was coming into town. I got to the corner of Fifth and Vine Street. And I heard some guy talking. Never even thought about it. But all of a sudden, this guy was talking about this great opportunity to be at the wedding feast of the crown prince of the universe. And I obeyed him. And here I am. Have any of you ever come to Christ because of a street preacher? Any of you? Anybody say because of a street preacher? Uh, I was reading this past week the testimony of Lon Solomon, the pastor of the mega church across the hill there, uh, McLean Bible Church. Lon Solomon was a student at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and he said, he says this about himself. He said he smoked dope, he dropped acid, he had bell bottoms and love beads. And he said, I quote, I was one of the most profane, unrighteous, sociopathic human beings you've ever met. He said he was a therapist's dream. 
And then he said, there was nothing in my early background that indicated I was going to grow up and live a healthy life, much less be a pastor. And then he met a street preacher in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he heard the gospel and came to Christ. My question, who was that street preacher? You know, who was that guy? Can you imagine that fella at this wedding reception shortly meeting Lonnie again and saying to Lonnie, so what happened to you, brother, when after you came to Christ? And Lonnie filling him in on some of the details. You know, he's pastor of this church of 12,000 people. How do you think that preacher's going to respond? You know, here he was simply obeying God and doing a difficult task. And perhaps he didn't know much about what happened. I bet when he meets Lon Solomon, he will be ecstatic over God's grace to him. So that's what happens here. People respond to a gospel message and they get into this spectacular feast. So everybody came as they were. Everybody came as they were. Here's this interesting section, verses 11 to 13. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's going on here? Why in the world is the king so dissatisfied that he didn't get the right outfit on? Well, the surprise to this king is that somebody would be at a wedding ceremony this glorious with his old clothes on. Now, I would think in reading this that a lot of people would have their old clothes on, you know? They were doing business out in the streets and they hear this message and they go in. So what is the scoop about old clothes? Was this man responsible for providing his own clothes, his own wedding garment? Was it his fault that he didn't have a wedding garment on? I mean, should he have gone home and gotten one? Let me give you three ideas here. Number one, he came off the street and didn't have time. Number two, he was speechless, meaning he didn't have an excuse. If he was required to supply the garment, he could have said, well, I couldn't afford it, didn't have time to rent it. But he had no excuse The fact is that no one had time or money to get wedding garments grand enough for this celebration. Number three, verse 11 is perfect passive. Perfect passive. Passive means you don't do it. It's done to you. And so verse 11 should be translated, 
When the king came in to look at his guests, he saw there was a man who had not been garmented. Implication, others supplied the garment. So what happened was when you went into this wedding feast, you received a garment and you put it on. History tells us that this was fairly normal. That some kings would actually supply several changes of garments for their special feasts. So on one day, you would be given this garment. On another day, you'd be given this garment. Because what that did was that it took the pressure off the visitors and it showed the royalty of the king. There were some kings that actually required you to wear their garments when you came into the king's presence. Because the danger was nobody would have a garment royal enough for that king. So the point here is that this man is there without a garment intentionally. And the king says, how did you do it? His attitude shows that he considers this an insult to his son and an insult to his guests and an insult to the wedding itself. How did you dare reject the wedding garment offered you and yet force yourself into this wedding? How did you dare regard your own garments as being good enough when everything here is royal? No reasonable answer was possible. He was made speechless by the question. One commentary, Marvin Vincent says, the implication in the question is that the man knew what he was doing. It was intentional. So he thought that this wedding was such a thing that he could wear whatever he wanted. Several years ago, we had an illustration that was similar to this in Prince George's County. This speechlessness situation. Uh, We were part of a funeral parade for a Prince George's County policewoman. It was the kind of parade that could only be put on by the police department. This was Route 3, going through Crofton, Maryland, through the business district, Wegamans, Wallchapel Road, and on up through there. It's a four-lane road that's often jam-packed, and it was clear. There were no cars. And this wedding procession went up through this four-lane road with nobody else allowed on the road. There was this roving band of motorcycle police and, and they kept the road clear. And it was, it was a real honor. I thought it was a real honor to just participate in this and drive up Route 3 when it was empty. But somebody got the bright idea of joining our group. And he pulled out of one, one of the stores, you know, somewhere and just got in line. <clears throat> and was cruising along merrily at 22 miles an hour until the police came up beside him in a motorcycle and gave him the finger of authority. It was interesting to watch the guy. He immediately turned off. Nothing to say, nothing to do. Here was a man who did not have the proper garment. 
He hadn't been to the funeral. He didn't get the sign on his window that said funeral. And he was out. He could have come. The sign was free. He could have been part of it. No, he had a better idea. The same thing here. The man was not a guest of the wedding because he had rejected the gifts that would make him a guest. So Christ gives us two different classes. We have two different classes of people who were called but not chosen. Class one, those who viewed the invitation as worthless. Verses 3, 5, and 6. And therefore were unworthy. Class two, those who accepted the invitation but did not view the banquet as anything special and came in their own clothes. R.C.H. Lenski makes this statement. The first are those who never believed. The last are those who pretended to believe. So the call went out to everybody, but the call A had to be obeyed, and the call B had to receive the special garment to participate in the wedding. I think that is a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us in the gospel. Jesus Christ has supplied the righteousness that we need, and he gives us his garment to put on. Here's Isaiah chapter 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. How did you get in? Jesus Christ gave me what I needed. So, being called was not the same as being chosen. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. How can someone be called and not chosen? They were called because they were Israelites. They belonged to the sons of Abraham. And they were the invited ones. The Pharisees were the leaders of the invited ones. But the chosen are those who have responded to the invitation. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were called in verses 3 and 4. They'd received the official invitation to the wedding. They'd received two visits from the, from the servants. Their responses show why they were not in the second category, the chosen. They were not willing. Their wills determined their destiny. The parable shows us who the chosen are. Those who have listened to the announcement, accepted the call, come to the wedding, put on the garment of Christ's righteousness. The others were called unworthy. The Pharisees, with their self-righteous presumption, were unworthy of this unusual celebration because it was prepared for humble listeners. Let me say in closing that I have greatly appreciated being with you these three Sundays. Is it 1220 already? I'm sorry for keeping you. 
Am I boring you? Uh, I was getting ready to say that I greatly appreciate the privilege of being with you and, and being in these three parables. I just think these are amazing parables. The way I read these parables is that Jesus is helping in these three parables, he's helping Pharisees understand what's going on. They say, by whose authority are you doing this? And he says, well, let me explain to you that there were good guys and bad guys, and you were the good guys who were hypocrites. You said, yes, Daddy, I will obey, and you didn't obey. And in the second parable, he says to the Pharisees, you have been given a privilege of ruling God's vineyard, and you got the idea that you're going to own this vineyard and you saw the heir and you said, let's take him out and take over the vineyard. And in the third parable, he's saying to the Pharisees, do you understand you've had invitation after invitation after invitation and you are the ones who have said no. And not only has your hypocrisy ruined your life, but your hypocrisy has affected the entire vineyard. So you have a generation of people coming after you that are turning away from the greatest invitation they could ever have. What strikes me in all of this is the heart of Jesus Christ. Here are guys who in three days are going to see that he's nailed to a cross. And in three days he's going to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here are guys who have blood on their hearts, and he's saying to them, I love you guys. I want you to have what's best. He's saying to them, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your attitude is. I want your heart. I want your heart. I want to help you think this thing through so you understand what's going on. Amazing heart of Jesus Christ. Chuck Colson said that in August of 1973, he went to visit his old friend Tom Phillips just to talk. He wasn't sure why he went. He thought nothing about his sin. He saw nothing particularly wrong about what he had done at Watergate. He said, I knew what I'd done was at least no different than what everybody else had done. Right and wrong were not determined by absolute standards. They were relative to people and situations. And people in politics played dirty. It was all part of the game. But that night, he said, when I left my friend and sat alone in my car, my own sin, not just Watergate, but the deep evil within, was thrust upon me by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean. Yet I could not turn away. I was as helpless as the thief nailed on that cross. And what I saw within me was so ugly, I could do nothing but cry out to God for help. That's exactly where Jesus wanted these Pharisees to come. He wanted them to understand the ugly sinfulness of their hypocrisy 
and what it was doing to everybody else. That's what Jesus Christ wants us to see. Wants us to recognize who we really are. What's going on behind the mask? And what our true relationship is with him. Have you ever come to Jesus Christ? Have you ever received from him the garment? Someday when you face Peter at the pearly gates and he says, why should I let you into this perfect place? You can answer this way. Because somebody loved me enough to die for me and pay my way. And I received his gift. Have you ever received his gift? Are you going to be at that wedding? It's going to happen very shortly. You, you prepare by coming to Jesus Christ, by receiving him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to realize the heart, the heart of God as displayed by Jesus Christ on earth. His love for these men, his love for us, his love for people who perhaps for many years have said no to him. I pray that if there's someone here this morning who has said no, that you would do a work in his heart or her heart to help them understand their sinfulness and help them understand that forgiveness of sin is a gift that you want to give. I pray today they might receive the garment of righteousness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the privilege of spending time in these three amazing parables I pray as we go from here, we might go in your strength and your wisdom with your presence. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.